Thucydides' trap is the dangerous dynamic that occurs when a rising power threatens to displace a ruling power. So to say war between the US and China is inevitable would be wrong, but to say that there's a high risk of war between the US and China if the same historical patterns play out would be correct. Hi, and welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and in this episode of the MWI podcast, Captain Jake Moraldi speaks to Dr. Graham Allison. Earlier this year, Dr. Allison completed his 22-year-long tenure as director of Harvard's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. His latest book examines the notion of Thucydides' trap and what it means for the possibility of war between the United States and a rising China. The title of the book is Destined for War, Can America and China Escape Thucydides' Trap? That it takes the form of a question is important because there are a range of complex factors that will determine whether the two countries will fall into the trap that so many countries in similar situations have throughout history. In this fascinating conversation, Dr. Allison examines some of these factors and describes what he believes to be the most likely driver of conflict in the near term, namely, the North Korea wildcard. Before we get to the conversation, just a couple quick notes. First, you might also be interested in MWI's other podcast, The Spear. Each episode features a one-on-one interview with an individual who walks us through an event, a mission, a firefight, a battle, and their role in it. It's a first-person account of combat, and you can find episodes on the MWI website or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's Captain Jake Moraldi's conversation with Dr. Graham Allison. Dr. Allison, thank you for sitting down and talking to us today. It's a great honor to have you here. Pleasure to be here. Um, What I'd like to do up front is talk about some definitions to sort of set the scene for the rest of our conversation. And the first one that I want to hit is in the title of of your book, um, and it's the concept of the Thucydides Trap. Can you give a little bit of background what what that means? Well, in in one line, Thucydides' trap is the dangerous dynamic that occurs when a rising power threatens to displace a ruling power. And then when I'm given a presentation on it, I say Thucydides taught us that when a rising power threatens to displace a ruling power, poop happens. That's historically uh, accurate. Thucydides, captured this idea, this insight, in uh, the first ever work of history, because uh, he's the founder of history, and this is his great history of the Peloponnesian War that uh, uh, analyzes the rise of Athens and its impact on Sparta. But if we look at the rise of Germany and its impact on Britain, which had ruled the world for a hundred years, or today the rise of China and its impact on the U.S., we see this phenomenon, a dangerous dynamic that occurs. Uh, In the book, I look at the the last 500 years of history, and I identify 16 cases in which a rising power threatened to displace a ruling power. In 12 of those cases, the outcome was war. Think of World War I. In four of the cases, the outcome was not war. Think of the Cold War, which even though we call it a war, 
fortunately it didn't include bombs and bullets of Americans and Soviets killing each other. Sure. So Thucydides has a famous, often quoted line about it was the rise of Athens and the fear that that instilled in Sparta that made the war inevitable. I say inevitable is not quite the right word. That's an exaggeration. Mm-hmm. Just likely would be the right word. So to say war between the U.S. and China is inevitable would be wrong. But to say that there's a high risk of war between the U.S. and China if the same historical patterns play out would be correct. So in, in that way, based on your understanding of history and the, and the analysis that you've done through the past 500 years of history, judging ascending powers versus uh, descending or, or stasis powers, what do you see in the current environment between the United States and China of the Thucydides trap playing out? How does, how does that interaction work in your mind? Good, good question. So basically, uh, as Henry Kissinger said about the, the book and about this idea, that Thucydides trap provides the best lens available for looking through the noise and news of the day to see the underlying dynamic in what's happening between the U.S. and China. Now, then it gets long and complicated, but I describe this in the book, uh, particularly since most Americans, I think, are not familiar with the meteoric rise of China over the past generation to the point of rivalry or even surpassing the U.S. in many dimensions. And the ways in which this leads to war, historically, uh, uh, is rarely that the rising power decides uh, I'm so big, I'm so strong, it's time for me now to attack the mm-hmm. ruling power. Or alternatively, the ruling power thinks this upstart is getting bigger and stronger and I should fight him now rather than later because later he can be stronger. What happens, as Thucydides explains, and as I try to explain in the book, is that given this dangerous dynamic, third-party provocations which were not intended by either of the primary contenders and would have otherwise been manageable by the contenders, uh, trigger a reaction by one of the two primary competitors to which the other feels obliged to react. And then one thing leads to the other, and lo and behold, they find themselves in a war that neither wanted. So the reason why I think this, this concept is so relevant today is that obviously there's no same, no person at all in Washington who wants war with China. If you go to a meeting in the Pentagon and you say, I have a good idea, it's time for war with China, people put you in an asylum. I was in Beijing about eight weeks ago talking to their PLA colonels. And uh, I said, you know, did anybody, is there, does anybody in China have any idea about a war with the U.S.? That would be insane. Everybody knows that would be insane. So there's nobody in Beijing planning on a war with China, with the U.S. But if we go back to 1914, was there anybody that wanted World War I? No. So how in the world did the assassination of an archduke, who was an otherwise inconsequential figure, trigger a cascade at the end of which was a conflagration that was so devastating that historians had to create a whole new category that's what's called World War I. Mm-hmm. Okay? So in the current situation, I think the most dangerous uh, a potential pro- provocateur is Kim Jong-un in North Korea. And I think that, uh, God forbid, uh, 
he's going to continue testing ICBMs that'll give him the capability to deliver nuclear warhead against San Francisco, or somebody's going to intervene to prevent him from doing that. And President Trump said, if nobody else will, he will. And he'll do that by attacking North Korea. But uh, as I explained in the book, uh, uh, most people have forgotten what happened in 1950. Uh, in 1950, North Korea dragged the U.S. and China into a war with each other that neither could even imagine and that neither wanted and that both tried not to have happen. So the answer is we've seen this story before mm -hmm. and my hope uh, is the book will help us recognize that we're living in a dangerous dynamic and therefore we have to be much more imaginative and much more forward-leaning in finding ways not to allow guys like Kim Jong-un to drag us somewhere where we, where we don't want to go. So I think it's, it's interesting that you say that the third party elements, not the, the two major powers, are necessarily the ones that, that want war and ended up starting the war. But that third party piece is really just the, the catalyst, the spark for that larger war that's undergirded by fear, fear of the, the current dominant power. Um, and I'm curious how you assess the, the concept of collective fear in the United States as it pertains to China. What are, what are we as a, a collective entity fearful about uh, with China's rise? Well, I, I think uh, we're only coming to this and you can see it giving, giving, you can see it manifest increasingly and I would predict it's going to be even more so. So the principle I mean, in, the, in the recent campaign in which President Trump was elected, who did he identify as the number one adversary of the U.S. that was preventing American greatness? China. He said the Chinese were raping our economy, that they had a predatory uh, economy that uh, was stealing our secrets, uh, was stealing our uh, 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 IT, was in our intellectual property, was uh, preventing American firms operating in China while forcing uh, uh, or trying to insert Chinese firms into the U.S. economy in key sectors, was cheating in the trade arrangements. So China, uh, I think actually, as you, if you uh, read the papers or you take your news feed, every day you'll find China in your face and in your space more and more. And Americans' reaction to that is quite naturally, like any ruling power, wait a minute, you upstart, why are you challenging us in the South China Sea? Why are you building islands? Why do you think that the Philippines should be beholden to you rather than to us? The arrangements that we put in place after World War II, the Asian order, has provided the framework within which you've ever had an opportunity to grow up. And it's a fact. The American uh, security and economic order in Asia was the enabler of all the Asian miracles. Asia has never seen anything like the past seven decades. But a China that is now bigger and stronger wants to stand tall and be strong in the East, as Xi Jinping says. And by that he means we should be the predominant power not you. So if you're uh, Admiral Harry Harris, Paycom, person I know well and like, he's thinking, well, why are these guys pushing our carriers back 
behind the first island chain? And the answer is because when we were inside the first island chain and they tried to coerce Taiwan in 1996, we sent in carriers and they had to back down. They didn't like that. So they've been building missiles that'll push our carriers back out, and they have done that. And the question is, well, why is China uh, squeezing the Philippines or Malaysia or Singapore or others? Uh, why don't they just all, you know, agree on some rules of the road and everybody uh, live and let live? To which the answer is, the Chinese think they're bigger and stronger, so they want to have things their way as opposed to our way. So I think that friction we're going to see uh, occurring and for Americans in particular, especially red-blooded Americans, and I'd say even worse, red-necked red-blooded Americans like me, because I come from North Carolina. We know that somehow, somewhere, it's written that America is destined to be number one. That's who we are. So the idea that somebody else can be as big and strong as we are in their domain is extremely uncomfortable. And I would say, I mean, first uncomfortable is the inevitable and fearful a bit because I know how things were before and I don't quite know what they're going to be when the substart has its way. And this phenomenon uh, that Thucydides identified, actually we can see not only in the relations between states, you can see this in the taxi industry's reaction to upstarts like Uber or Lyft. You can see this in the uh, IT worlds and even the news worlds and everybody else's worlds. Uh, reaction to Amazon, you know, taking over everything or Google and uh, uh, and Apple, uh, you know, overturning arrangements that seemed quite natural before for Netscape or Microsoft or IBM or Dell, some of which are still surviving and some of which have gone by the wayside. Yeah, yeah. Even even at an individual level, we when when challenged, there's an instinctive reaction to that. Well, you can see in families, interestingly, that uh, if you have two kids and one of them is, uh, you know, say one one year younger than the other, and you know, the older kid is taller, and now lo and behold, the younger kid sprouts and actually gets to be taller than the older kid. And now watch the dinner table conversation, who talks more? And even maybe a conversation about whether the bedrooms are appropriately allocated. I need a little more space. Uh, so I think this is a very human uh, reaction. It's actually, you can see this in animals. If you watch in a gorilla uh, a hierarchy, anywhere where you have a, a hierarchical dominance governance system, you can see the uh, alpha wolf and the wannabe and the way that relationship uh, becomes extremely tense. So I'm curious, we talked about sort of the, the psychological drivers from the United States perspective, and I'm curious what the, what the other side, what the Chinese side's psychological drivers are. Obviously there's an element of we want prosperity for our people and we want to uh, ascend as much as possible as we can on the world stage. But is there an element of, of fear that also undergirds a little bit of what the Chinese are, are doing in regards to us or, or the world order? So I wrote a piece uh, the week before uh, the, the party congress that said, behold the new emperor of China. 
So basically, Xi Jinping was not just given a second five-year term, but was almost uh, crowned uh, as the great leader equivalent to Mao. So every member of the party has now got to be study, quote, the thoughts of Xi Jinping, and then the laying out of a work plan over three and a half hours, which is a very detailed and complicated work plan in which everybody's supposed to read, follow, plan. So basically, from the per Chinese perspective, and then he was out this week uh, uh, sort of following up with the messages from this. And the message is, we are now arrived. We've been rising, but we're arriving. And we're going to stand tall and be strong. And we're going to be proud. We're no longer going to be humiliated by these foreigners. Because their story is that we were big and powerful and strong, actually the dominant power in all of our world for 5,000 years. Until the last 200 years, when these foreigners came with their technology and humiliated us. But we're not being humiliated anymore. So as we stand up and are stronger, we want them to butt out and to give us space to lead in our way. And we don't want to lead in their way. We have our idea how things work. And in our idea how things work, we don't do democracy. No, we do party leadership of everything. So one of the great lines in the in the speeches over and over. We have the party leadership of the economy. We have the party leadership of the polity. We have the party leadership of the society. We have the party leadership of the army. We have the party, you know, everything. Okay? And then in the world, we're going to stand up and be big and strong as Chinese so that as Chinese, you can hold your head up. You can feel bigger and stronger. So that this is very, very similar. In, in my book, I have a chapter called, What if She's China was just like us? And I read this through the eyes of Teddy Roosevelt, who's one of my heroes. So Teddy Roosevelt was 37 years old when he came to Washington in 1897 to be the number two person in the Department of the Navy. And he believed uh, that he was going to lead the U.S., into an American century. And lo and behold, he did. But the way in which he did it, uh, if Xi Jinping should behave like that, we would be shocked. So to start with, he thought, what the hell are the Spanish doing in Cuba when they were occupied? He thought that, as he said, was an abomination. So as soon as there was an occasion when there was a mysterious explosion in Havana Harbor that on, a, on an American ship, we declared war on Spain, and we liberated Cuba, and we took Puerto Rico. That's how we got Guam as a spoil of war. We then sponsored and supported a coup in Colombia, uh, created a whole new country, Panama, which gave Teddy his canal so that we could move the American Navy from the Atlantic to the Pacific. We then threatened war, with uh, first with Germany, and then with Britain, unless they butted out of territorial disputes in Venezuela. And then we stole the biggest part of the fat tail of Alaska from Canada and, and so forth. So the chapter reminds you that rising powers can be very exuberant, audacious, full of themselves, thinking, well, wait a minute, this is, as Teddy Roosevelt said, this is our hemisphere, our whole hemisphere. So Xi Jinping hadn't quite got there yet, but I would say watch that space. You mentioned towards the beginning of the talk 
that in the 16 case studies that you'd analyzed for the book, that 12 of them le led to war. Um, so that war in, in the case of a Thucydides trap situation is not inevitable, but it's very likely. Um, given that we're not in a place where war seems inevitable with China, what are some of the ways that we as the United States should go about engaging China or engaging those third parties uh, to try and avoid uh, an unnecessary conflagration with, with China? So a good, a good question. So first, most important, war with China is not inevitable. Not inevitable. This book is not about fatalism and it's not about pessimism. It is about understanding that in a dangerous dynamic, war is possible maybe even likely. And therefore, business as usual will likely produce history as usual. But as I argue in the book, uh, Santayana had this great insight. He says that only those who refuse to study history are condemned to repeat it. So there's no obligation that we have to make the same dumb mistakes that other people have made. So the hope in the book is that we look at the successes and we look at the failures and we say, yikes, we're in a dangerous uh, dynamic here. Uh, now, what does that mean we have to do? So three things I would say, summarizing briefly. First, identify the dangerous potential third-party provocations and provocateurs that could drag us where we don't want to go. So the case we're going to see in the, in the uh, months right now quickly uh, is uh, in the weeks ahead or months ahead, but before a year from today, either North Korea will acquire the ability to uh, strike the American homeland with nuclear weapons or we're going to strike them or there's going to be some mis mysterious third intervention. So if that happens, uh, as Secretary Mattis has testified, so if we strike North Korea, most likely, North Korea attacks Seoul. We then attack the forces that are attacking Seoul. We then have the Second Korean War. And as he says, this war is going to be catastrophic, unlike any war we've seen in, in our lifetime since Korea. So tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of Americans could die. And hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of Chinese and millions of Koreans. So this is not like the Iraq War, the Afghan, this is kind of like real, traditional, big war. Uh, and uh, he says, Mattis says, we're going to win. But Chinese say, that's what you thought in 1950. But you didn't win in 1950. We entered the war, and we beat you back down to the 38th parallel. You had to settle for an armistice. So this could not only be a war with North Korea, this could drag China into war. Well, this is crazy. So we should have Americans and Chinese sitting down quietly and saying, this could happen. Even though we don't want it, this could happen. What can we do jointly to prevent this happening and be inventive? That's one of 10. I have a chapter in the book called uh, From Here to War. And I got, you know, five good scenarios for getting to war. Mm -hmm. Each one of them we should look at and say, we're not going to let that happen. Secondly, we should notice that the U.S. and China have many, many common interests, shared interests, actually shared interests that are uh, vital 
for the well-being of both countries. So first, we have to avoid a full-scale war with China, which could become a nuclear war, which would destroy the United States. So that means like an absolute requirement, and it's ditto for China. So that's, that was the bedrock in this U.S.-Soviet competition that made us so cautious, and thank goodness we survived, but with some very close calls, like the Cuban Missile Crisis, about which I've written separately. So secondly, our economics have become deeply, deeply entangled. If we had a war with China, Walmarts would be empty, and Chinese factories would be producing stuff for who? Nobody. And we'll have trouble getting a loan for our deficit. So basically, these economies are deeply entangled. Now, it's hard to manage it, and the Chinese have been exploiting the relationship, I think. But still, overall, this has enriched both of us and can be manageable. Thirdly, climate. If we don't find a way for both the two biggest emitters of greenhouse gases in the world to limit this uh, process, a hundred years from now, we'll have an environment that nobody wants to live in. So those are big areas to build on for cooperative activity. That then helps the areas of competition uh, to provide a context in which they can be addressed. And then I think with respect to the, the areas of competition, we're going to both have to be more adaptive and be prepared to, ad to adjust. So is it, is it necessary for the U.S. to conduct all of the military operations we do in the area, including running intelligence planes along there? there uh, no, it's not. It's just we do it because that's the way we've been doing for a long time, and maybe we pick up a little bit of extra environment. But could we adjust that? Yes, we could, if we got something for it. So I wouldn't give away anything for anything, but I would imagine that we're going to be negotiating and adapting and adjusting. And then ultimately, the, the arrangements will reflect the underlying correlation of forces. But unless we give up on the view that a free, uh, democratic, uh, a more open market-based society can compete more successfully than a party-led, party-dominated uh, polity and governance and economy, uh, then, well, I would say, you know, we, we compete in the areas in which we compete. And I'm pretty persuaded that our set of values are the right core values, not theirs. But uh, I think that that's, you know, that'll be the contest. Well, Dr. Allison, we got to wrap up. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Pleasure to be here. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. Before you go, we have one quick thing to ask of you. If you're enjoying the MWI podcast, we would love it if you'd take a few seconds and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's a great way to help new listeners find us. All right, thanks again.